Just so I, so I think that might mean they need more. They don't, nobody wants to say that they need more. Is that better? You don't think it's on? Oh, okay. All right. I think so. We want to make sure we don't get lots of feedback, though. You never know when you might show up and the regular preaching mic just isn't working. So pray for Brandon as he figures out what in the world is wrong with that thing, and Lord willing, we'll have it all figured out for next week. Psalm 99, that's on page 500, if you're using the Bibles provided for you in the backs of the chairs. We're about halfway through this summer's Summer in Psalms series, and uh, I am so thankful, as I've mentioned already before, for the preaching ministry of godly men like Brian, who's out of town today, and Paul, who's out of town today, and Jonathan over there this morning during the first month while my family and I were on vacation. It was a joy for me, though, to step back into the pulpit last Sunday, and I'm excited to bring Psalm 99 to you today. Psalm 99 stands in book four of the Psalter in a section known as the Malak Psalms. Those Psalms are a collection that, that number from Psalm 93 to 100, which is not all of Book 4, but it's a big chunk of Book 4. And those Psalms, 93 through 100, focus on the kingly rule of Yahweh over the world. I actually saw one contemporary Irish pastor refer to this as the God reigns section of the Psalms. We have seen that theme of reigning and ruling already, his exclusive claim to deity, his absolute sovereignty. That theme has already been displayed for us in this summer's Summer in Psalm series, and it continues today. And I'd like to read it together again. Psalm 99, this is what Scripture says. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. These are the words of the Lord. What I'd like to do is just to start by looking at the refrain of this psalm, this song, or you might call it a chorus. It's repeated three times in Psalm 99, each time with a slightly different wording, but the same theme. Did you see it yet? You see it in verse 3, you see it in verse 5, and you see it in verse 9. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. What do these three verses and these three refrains or choruses have in common with each other thematically? Well, each of them includes some kind of a call 
to worship, and then the reason is given why worship. The reason is because he is holy. You see it there in verses 3, 5, and 9? That's the refrain. That's the chorus of this song. And so the first thing that we're looking at here is the refrain, that God deserves worshipers because he is holy. Now, certainly each of the stanzas, or you might call them verses, of this poem, of this song, support that refrain and that chorus. But each instance of the refrain stands on its own, too. Did you just lose me? You can still hear me? All right, great. I lost it over here, but that's fine. Each of these uh, uh, repeats of the refrain stand on their own, too, and call for worshipers to worship God because of his holiness. And in verse 3 and 5, you see the exact same phrase at the very end. Holy is he at the end of verse 3. And then same in 5. Holy is he. But then in verse 9, it's fleshed out a little bit more. The Lord our God is holy. So let's take just a couple of minutes and talk about holiness. One of the modern, contemporary, uh, great resources on this comes from a, a brother in the Lord who's, who's been in the Lord's presence since 2017. Perhaps you've heard of him. His name is R.C. Sproul. Wrote a book called The Holiness of God, which I heartily recommend to you as a uh, a help to you in understanding this theme. He gives two definitions for holiness or, or the word holy. The secondary definition he gives is purity. The primary, separate. A lot of times I think we as, as Christians can think of holiness as simply not sinning. And so that idea of purity. And that is certainly true but at the essence of what it means to be holy is to be separate. And that doesn't just mean like away from, even though it can mean that. It means other than. Separate essentially means other than or unique or apart from, indeed, like we might think in our, in our minds when we hear the word separate. In other words, God's holiness is his essence of being totally different than everything and everyone else. He is other than everyone and everything else. There is no one, there is no thing like him in all the universe. He is totally unique. He is totally other. And yes, therefore, he is separate or apart from everyone and everything else. Because the fact that he is the primary being in all the universe and is the source of everyone and everything else means that he does not fall into the same category as anything or anyone else. He is in his own category. He is the only one who is the creator. He is the only one who is the sustainer of creation. He is the only one who was never created. He is the only one who is totally morally pure. He is the only one whose wisdom is infinite, whose love is perfect, and whose power is total. He is the only one of his kind. He is totally other than everything and everyone else. So, if you want to know what is meant by holy, if you want to know what is meant by holiness, think of otherness. And so that's what the psalmist is getting at in Psalm 99 when he says, holy is he. 
There's no one like him. There's no thing like him. He is all alone at the top of the top of the top of the list. He is separate from all sin. He is separate from all sinners. He is infinitely different, infinitely better, infinitely more beautiful, infinitely more glorious than everything else. He is other than everything else. But is the psalmist just sort of generically praising God's holiness here because he wanted to write a poem about it? Psalm 99 can certainly serve us that way, but I'm convinced there's more to it than just that, that this is a nice poem that reminds us of that fact. Look at these first three verses again that lead us to that first refrain. These first three verses establish the goal of this psalm, and you see a phrase repeated twice. It's the people's. Let the peoples tremble at the beginning of verse 1, and then he is exalted over all the peoples in verse 2. This phrase, the peoples, in this context, refers to Gentiles, those not in the Israelite faith community, those outside the Jewish nation, outside, therefore, of a covenant relationship with God. These are unbelievers. They may have, you may think of them as pagans. These were outsiders. And in most cases, these were actual active enemies against God and his people. And in verse 1, the peoples are called to tremble at the news that the Lord reigns. Because, my friends, the fact that Yahweh rules the universe is terrifying to all who are outside of his covenant people. If they do not enter into a relationship with Yahweh through faith in the atonement and forgiveness of their sins that he provides, they will perish. In verse 2, the peoples are said to be under Yahweh. He is exalted over them, it says. He reigns over them. They are under him. Does this mean that they are inferior to him? It most absolutely does. Does this mean that he is better than and superior to them and everyone else? It most absolutely does. Because he is holy. Because he is other than everything and everyone else. He is number one. He is the utmost highest of all beings and everything and everyone else is subservient or underneath the authority of his rule and the extent of his reign. Now in verse 3, you actually get another reference in a way to the peoples, this time via the pronoun them, because it says, let them praise your great and awesome name. Let the peoples praise your great and awesome name. They're called to praise God, to praise his name, and that idea of praising his name is praising his character, praising his nature, praising him for his essence of who he is. And so did the psalmist just generically want to write a poem about his holiness? I don't think so. I don't think the psalmist just wanted to write a poem about the fact that God is holy. I think he wrote this poem, this psalm, this song about how the fact that God is holy leads to the act of worship from people, from all people. And so once again, here we are in this section of the Psalms that are characterized this way, and we see this call to the nations to come to God in worship. This call to embrace him as the king. 
to acknowledge him as holy, to worship him in a relationship. And so this is the primary theme of this song repeated in each instance of the refrain. And based on that first stanza where the goal is established, the theme of this song is the fact that God deserves worshipers because he is holy. And you know, my friends, that fact, that truth ought to be at the top of our list of motivations for any kind of ministry, any kind of missional activity. There are other motivations than that, and there are good ones, but there are none more important than the fact that God deserves worshipers because he is holy. Since God is totally other than anything or anyone else, all peoples should bow to him in reverence and awe and wonder and worship. That's why we send people and go to the nations with the good news of Jesus' saving work for all who will believe. That's why we go to our offices looking for opportunities to share the gospel with our coworkers. That's why we invite our neighbors over for a cookout or a board game or whatever else, or movie night, in hopes of striking up a conversation with them that will lead to gospel witness opportunities. That's why we reach out to our city to seek to meet people's needs, to display God's grace and mercy, to be part of what Jesus told us to pray for, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we go with the gospel, my friends, wherever it is that we go. It's because God deserves worshipers because he is holy. And so that's the refrain. Now here's the first of Psalm 99's three stanzas. Stanza one, he reigns sovereignly. Talked a little bit about this already in verses one and two, but here's the deal. When the psalmist calls for the peoples to worship God because he is holy, what is meant by holy, as we've already talked about, is not simply that he's morally pure or sinless, though that's certainly part of it. Remember, what is primarily meant by holiness is Otherness. He is singularly in a category all by himself. And so this call to the nations to worship God in his holiness has missional intention behind it. And that's why the psalmist says what he says in this first stanza. Look at the first two verses. Do you see the language of sovereignty here? Verse 1 says he reigns. It says in the second half of verse 1 that he sits enthroned. In verse 2, it's talking about his greatness in Zion. It talks about his place of exaltation over all the peoples. There's some really important things here that, that we need to see, one of which is this phrase that he sits enthroned above, excuse me, upon the cherubim. What's this talking about? Is it just simply saying that he is over in position the angels that serve him? Well, that's certainly true. That's not what the psalmist means here. Look with me on the screens at Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 22, where God tells the people of Israel, they shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, 
Two cubits and a half shall it be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be, cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. You see, my friends, it was upon the cherubim of the ark, these cherubim made of gold, that the presence of God dwelt in the temple. And that's what the psalmist is talking about when he speaks of Zion, too. Zion was the name for the mountain where the city of Jerusalem was. Interestingly, this psalm was likely written during the exile or post-exilic period, and if it was... Even though the Israelites were exiled, the psalmist is saying that the presence of God, the actual presence of God, not just a symbol, the actual presence of God was still a sure thing for Israel to count on and to trust in and to share with the nations. It may not have felt to them like the Lord was very, quote, great in Zion, because Zion's city, Jerusalem, had fallen. The temple destroyed. That presence on the cherubim and the mercy seat where he communed with his people didn't seem as stable and steadfast as it once had. And yet, the psalmist says, the Lord's reign and rule had not ended. His reign was still sure. His character was still the same. So that leads me to a question. Why would the psalmist focus on God's sovereignty in the opening stanza of a call to worship God in his holiness? I think because the peoples, the Gentiles, the nations, the outsiders to the covenant community were trapped in a life of sinful worship of empty idols and of false gods, and they needed the news that there was a real God with real presence and real glory. And so the psalmist is saying to the peoples and calling God's people to say to the peoples, actually, there is a real God, the one true God. He's actually reigning. He's actually ruling. His actual presence is with his people even now, even though from our vantage point, things don't look that way. So as I studied and meditated on this, I thought to myself, boy, is this a call to 21st century American churches or what? Because from our vantage point, in our time and in our place, the presence of God doesn't seem very prevalent around us. We have got a divided culture where 
both sides in different ways fail to display biblical truth and virtue. We've got a society filled with people, some of whom even claim to be Christians, who care more about setting up gods for themselves that are just empty pleasures and last briefly and then vanish, whether it be money or sex or power or whatever else. And here we are, Christians, the people of God, we feel very much on the sidelines. We've been given a mission that we're supposed to be on, but we feel powerless to carry it out. Because from our vantage point, America isn't what it used to be, or evangelicalism is on the decline, or such and such a politician or person, or influential person of some kind is coming for the Christians. But my friends, the psalmist said, likely while the temple lay in ruins and the city of Zion had fallen, that Yahweh sovereignly reigned upon the throne of the cherubim in Zion. And he sought to call the nations to come to him in submission and worship. So then, might it also be true that even though our nation seems to just be falling deeper into godlessness. A nation which has had many Judeo-Christian values at its foundation, but has never been even the people of God like Israel was. Perhaps we too can say that God reigns and rules. Perhaps we too can call the nations to come to him in submission and worship. Redeemer Bible Church, are we characterized by a courageous faith for the glory of God and the good of his kingdom? Or are we characterized by grumpy, grumbling, overly busy discouragement because it just feels like the kingdom isn't that powerful right now? Friends, look at Psalm 99, 1 through 3. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. My friends, the Lord reigns. And that refrain calls for worship because of his holiness, because of his otherness and because of his reign. The second stanza is this, he judges righteously. Here's another reason for God to be worshiped by all the peoples in his holiness. The king, verse four, in his might loves justice. Remember, I'm saying that one of the primary aims of the psalmist here is to call the people's to worship God as the one true God rather than to look to their false and empty gods as a place of satisfaction. And here is another primary desire of the hearts of all potential worshipers, justice. And this is certainly a huge one in our context today, but it's always been something that image bearers of God have wanted. It's a desire in your heart. It's a desire in my heart. It's built into everyone's hearts in some way because we're created in the image of God. And even though that image has been marred or damaged by the curse of sin, we still have this good God-designed desire to see things be right. And so when something is wrong, we perceive it correctly. When it's unjust, our hearts ache. 
Our stomachs sometimes churn because we know it's not right. And you've seen things in our culture all over the place for years and years and years where this is the case. And you know, friends, when we see our world, and our culture in particular, clamoring for justice, can I just encourage you to remember this? Remember that in many cases, this is where it's coming from. I mean, certainly there are some who do not care, many who do not care about justice as much as they care about just using some sort of popular talking point to gain influence and power. But there are many image bearers in your grocery store, in your school, on your Zoom calls, and all over society longing to see wrongs be righted. They might not understand why it's wrong. They might not understand why what's right is right, but they want it. What comes to my mind quickly are some extended family members of mine who are unbelievers. They love to share things on social media in support of all the hot-button justice issues of the day. And I know them. They are, by, by the average standard of how a person would measure another person, they're good people. They're people of integrity. They're people who love their families. They have done good things in the world. They've adopted children. They're functional in their family and have good relationships with one another. But they are sadly and tragically misguided in their pursuit of justice. But their longing is genuine. They want things to be good and right because they're made in the image of God. And when they see something wrong, even though sometimes their judgment on what is wrong and right is incorrect, sometimes it's right. And they know they want to see something wrong righted. And I think that's at least part of why the psalmist brings up justice here. I actually think there are two parts why, and I'll get to the second in a moment. But the first is that the peoples want justice and righteousness. And they're looking for justice and righteousness in false gods and therefore are not finding it. And so Psalm 99 comes and says to the peoples, listen, I have good news for you. Justice and righteousness characterizes the reign of the one true God. We talked in our E412 class several weeks back about justice for quite a while. And Brian helpfully pointed us to this very phrase in Hebrew, justice and righteousness. It's what's called a hendiades, which means two words that are kind of intertwined together, seeking to communicate a unified truth. And that's what's happening here, this justice and righteousness, not really even two words, it's one idea. And here's what that, that hendiades of justice and righteousness boils down to. It speaks of God's relational commitment to both legal and loving righteousness or rightness. God's justice and righteousness is his desire for wholeness. Wholeness in his people's lives in particular, both individually and as a whole community, but certainly desire for wholeness even in those who have not yet come to him. And that's what the psalmist is pointing to here as one of the many, but one of the main reasons that God is worthy of worshipers. He judges righteously. He is committed to justice. In fact, look at verse 4. The king in his might loves justice. Goes on to say that he cares about equity. Talking about fairness and equal and impartial treatment. These are things that God loves. It's easy for us to say, well, sure doesn't seem like it. Look around us. Look at our nation. Look at the world. Look at the war in Ukraine. 
Look at the abortion industry in America, taking millions of lives unjustly. Look at the shootings that seem like they're just on repeat. These things are not just. People who love God around the world are persecuted and harmed and killed even for their commitment to God. How does that display God's justice? Now, without going down that rabbit hole too far, let me just respond briefly by saying this. If the scripture says that God cares about justice, then he cares about justice. And if it doesn't seem like he cares about justice, it means our perception may be skewed or limited. Our perceiving a lack of justice in God's governance doesn't mean he has ceased to be just. It might mean that we're missing something. It might mean that the time hasn't come yet for God's perfect justice in one particular life or one particular issue or one particular nation. But the fact remains, God is just and he judges justly. But I did say there are two reasons I think that Psalm 99 brings up justice. The first is this longing for justice in the peoples that then leads the psalmist to call them to turn to God in worship because he can give them the justice that they want. But I actually think the second is a bit more harrowing. In fact, Derek Kidner, one of the commentators I've referenced, highly recommend Derek Kidner's commentaries, by the way. They're very little, very accessible, very helpful for a study of the psalms. Kidner calls Psalm 99 a psalm of both high festivity and chastened awe. Because the other side of the coin when it comes to the news that God is just is the fact that all who do not repent of their sins and turn to him will be judged by this God. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. He is just, and so he cannot tolerate sin. He is not partial. He is fair in his treatment. He is just. He will not let unrepentant sinners get away with their sin, though he will forgive them if they repent and accept the atonement he offers. And so Psalm 99 gives good news That the one true God is a just God, a God of integrity, and a God to be trusted. And then the refrain again, that God deserves worshipers in verse 5 because he is holy. He is other than everyone and everything else in his justice and righteousness. And then here's where the message of the reality of this holy God just blooms and blossoms in this song. The third stanza is that he relates graciously. This final stanza, this third reason that the psalm communicates for God's worthiness of worship. It says he's worthy of worshipers because he's holy, the sovereign king of the universe in verses one through three. He's exalted. People are at his footstool. He's just. He's righteous in the next section. He's fair. But the most glorious, the most beautiful, and dare I say the most important thing about him is how he relates to sinners. Look at the language of grace in verses 6 through 8. He is answering the calls or prayers of his people. He's giving them laws so that they will have a covenant identity and can relate to him. 
He's giving them truth. He's revealing himself to them, even though they certainly don't deserve to have a relationship with him. And most of all, he's forgiving. We're pointed in these verses to three prominent characters in Old Testament Jewish history. Do you see them? Moses, in verse 6, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. All three of them, these verses say, act as priests. And that's important. It means they interceded, interceded for people, making sacrifices on their behalf. That's what interceding is talking about, doing something on behalf of someone else. Participating, they did, in God's plan for the atonement of sin needed for his people to be able to have a relationship with him. And it says in, uh, in verse 6 that they called upon his name. So they're asking for his help for his people. Moses does this most notably, perhaps it comes to your mind even, after the golden calf incident, interceding on behalf of God's people. Aaron most notably does this as the first high priest. Samuel does this perhaps most notably in 1 Samuel 7 when he makes sacrifices on behalf of Israel after their rebellion. And interestingly, this is the only place in the Bible where Moses is explicitly referred to as a priest, though certainly the fact of his priestly work is clear throughout the narrative of his life and ministry. Multiple times God says, I've had it with these Israelites, I'm going to kill them, and Moses says, no, Lord, please. And so the 6 and 7 say that they called on the Lord as his priests and that he answered them and that he spoke to them, and that they kept his law. They did this on behalf of his people. They did this as priests of God's people and as priests to God. They were being used in his gracious plan to provide a way for his people to have a relationship with him. You understand? And so all three of them, Moses, Aaron, Samuel, are noteworthy men who interceded on behalf of God's people, and their ministry was a display of God's relational grace to his people. And by the way, talk about grace. These men were not perfect. Aaron's the guy who failed most miserably during the golden calf incident. Moses disobeyed God and was kept out of the promised land. Samuel's boys, you may recall, went completely off the rails. And yet God graciously puts them in Psalm 99 as examples of good ministerial work, priests for his people. What grace. But look closely at what the beginning of verse 8 says. It says that God was a forgiving God to them. That is at the heart of God's relational great graciousness. Through the priestly work of these men on behalf of God's people, he forgave them. And to be sure, it also says right after that, that he is an avenger of wrongdoings too, doesn't he? That's consistent with the rest of Scripture. He said of himself when he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34 that he would by no means clear the guilty in other words, judgment for sin is sure, and God disciplines and chastises his children for their sin. That goes back to the point about justice. But the point of this third stanza is his relational graciousness to his children. He set up priests 
to intercede on his people's behalf. And when they called on him, he answered. He communicated with his people. He treated them graciously by forgiving them, all while still being a good father through disciplining them. And so as the psalmist calls the singers of this song and the readers of this poem to see how great God is in his holiness, he calls for worship because of his relational graciousness. And that's where the final refrain then comes in again. Now, as you look at verse 9 as the final refrain, what do you notice as being different that not, not a difference from 9 between 3 and 5, or from 3 and 5. 3 and 5, we have this repeated, holy is he. Holy is he. But then 9 brings it home and makes it personal. It ends with, our God is holy. Do you see that, that slight but important difference? He is a holy God. He is other than anything and anyone else. He is high above us. We worship at his footstool. We are beneath him. He is the king of all. He is great and awesome. He is just. He is an avenger, but he is our holy God. Reminds me of the line from one of our songs we sing, I am his and he is mine. That's the climax of this psalm. And oh, my friend, if you are a Christian, this is the most glorious part of this psalm for you today. God is yours if you are his. He's holy. He's transcendent. He's majestic. He is high above us, but he is also with us. He was with his people in the Old Testament through his gracious plan for atonement through the blood of animals through the temple worship process, and through priests like Moses and Aaron and Samuel in, ordained to intercede for his people. And that was good news for God's people then and to all the nations whose pursuit of false gods constantly came up short and empty. But my friends, as we read Psalm 99 with New Testament eyes, we see something even more beautiful, something even more life-changing because God was with his people in the Old Testament through the sacrificial system, through the tabernacle, through the priesthood and the temple. But the prophet Isaiah told of a time when a chosen servant of God would appear and be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Matthew recorded the story of the angels appearing to Joseph and Mary with news of the Messiah's arrival in Mary's womb, he made sure, Matthew did, to make the connection that Jesus was that one whom Isaiah foretold. Jesus was and is God with us. John said it this way in his gospel in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that literally means tabernacled with us. And so my friends, Jesus, Jesus is the clearest and most ultimate and most beautiful and most important display of God's relational graciousness that there is. God displayed it through Moses and Aaron and Samuel they were priests. They did intercede. God was gracious to his people through them. But Jesus is a much better priest than they ever were. They sinned and failed in their leadership roles, but Jesus never did. 
They sacrificed on behalf of God's people. Jesus performed and was the sacrifice for God's people. They called on the Lord on behalf of God's people, but they eventually died and their ministry ended. But Hebrews says he always lives to make intercession for his people. Friends, the ultimate display of our holy God's relational grace is seen in Jesus. God is answering his people's prayers through the unending priestly interceding work of Jesus. He's revealed himself to his people through the life and ministry and words of Jesus. He has forgiven his people through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross and at the empty tomb. And he has avenged his people's sins through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. My friends, all of Psalm 99 comes into clearest focus for us in Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that we can say, like the psalmist says at the end of this psalm, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. Redeemer Bible Church, recognize your humble place in subservience to the sovereignty of God. Tremble in both fear and gratitude at the reality of the perfect justice and righteousness of our holy God and be amazed at the love of this holy God to relate graciously to his people seen most clearly in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, help us now to be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving our own selves. May we go now in worship in our own hearts and with the message of the good news to others. Plant your word deep in our hearts. Shape and fashion us according to what it says. Change us and make us more into the image of our Savior Jesus, our great high priest, our only Savior, and our King. Grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Change us by it, I pray in Jesus' name. Let's continue in prayer quietly in our hearts for just a few minutes.